Redonda Vaught, a former nurse in Tennessee, was sentenced on Friday to three years of supervised probation after being convicted in March of making a fatal medication error in 2017, which resulted in the death of a patient under her care. Although Vaught isn't being sent to prison, her conviction and sentencing meted out for the kind of error that routinely occurs in healthcare institutions across the U.S. are a true travesty of justice. A nurse who made a grave error is convicted of a crime, while in another case, a physician who knowingly committed acts that hastened the deaths of multiple patients was acquitted. What is wrong with this picture? We're left scratching our heads. That was Michelle Collins and Sherry Burke reading from their first opinion essay, The Case of Redonda Vaught Highlights a Double Standard for Nurses and Physicians. Michelle is the Dean of the College of Nursing and Health at Loyola University in New Orleans, where Sherry is Director of the University's School of Nursing. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT. More than ever before, patients are seeking a more consistent healthcare experience tailored to their exact needs. I'm joined by Peter Shulam, MD, PhD, Global Head of Preclinical, Clinical, and Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson MedTech to discuss how technology is helping deliver on this vision. Thank you, Angus. At Johnson & Johnson, we are driven to improve surgical outcomes and elevate the standard of care globally. An example of how we're tackling this is by working to combine robotics, advanced imaging, and digitally enabled instruments all on a connected digital ecosystem so we can generate, aggregate, and process data. Data analytics will provide valuable insights and predictions to help augment surgical skill and enhance surgical judgment with the goal of improving outcomes and reducing surgeon variability. Think of an airplane pilot who is surrounded by technology within the cockpit that assists in the takeoff, flying, and landing of that plane. Our vision is to create a surgical cockpit with technology that will provide guidance and navigation to the surgeon to yield a more consistent performance and outcome. As this capability expands, patients could have comparable surgical outcomes no matter where they are in the world. The possibilities are endless. Thank you, Peter. Visit jnjmedtech.com to learn more. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thank you both for joining us on such short notice. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, our pleasure. So your essay is about a Tennessee nurse who is charged with, and I'm quoting here, reckless homicide and felony abuse of an impaired adult after a patient of hers died. This case has galvanized nurses across the country. Can you explain who Redonda Vaught is and what she did? Yes, she was a nurse at Vanderbilt Medical Center, and she, in my understanding of reading the facts in, in periodicals and in the news, she was uh, on duty in a unit that was, uh, she was like a float 
type of nurse. She was floated to a unit. She was also orienting somebody that day. I don't know if it was a student nurse or a new employee nurse, but it was a typical busy critical care unit. Um, she had a patient who was scheduled to undergo a procedure, um, a, a an imaging procedure, and the patient was scheduled to receive um, a medication that would relax the patient while she was inside the imaging uh, apparatus. When uh, Ms. Vaught went to the what we call the Pixis. It's like a, a, a machine apparatus that you can check your medications out of. Uh, she put in the first two letters of a medication that the patient was supposed to get. Another medication that the patient was not supposed to get came up and she inadvertently hit the button to, to collect that medication and ended up giving it to the patient. And the patient, it was a, a medication that... Uh, basically paralyzes your ability to breathe, your, your breathing muscles. And Dr. Burke can speak to that. She's a CRNA, a certified registered nurse anesthetist. She can speak to that better. But the patient basically then could not breathe inside the apparatus and subsequently uh, succumbed. And so that error was easy enough to make. The drug she was supposed to get, I understand, was Versed, V-E-R-S-E-D, which is a sedative. And what she got was Vercuronium, which also starts with V-E, so it, it, it sounds like a, a system problem as well as a human problem. Yes. Vecuronium is a paralytic muscle relaxant that you use for patients who are undergoing anesthesia or on ventilator receiving mechanical ventilation, whereas Versed is a benzodiazepine and anti-anxiety medication to help decrease your anxiety while you're undergoing a procedure. Um, having done a postdoc patient safety fellowship with the Veterans Administration, I will tell you that if they look at the root cause analysis of this error, they will find that the systems put in place to protect patients and to protect practitioners failed in this case. And we talk about reasons theory. Reasons theory, Swiss cheese theory, is basically we need to build systems that are so safe that the holes in the Swiss cheese, you know, if you hold up one slice, you can see through it. If you hold up a whole half a pound of Swiss cheese, you can rarely see through all the holes. Well, the holes all aligned here, and Miss Vaughn went through the holes, and an error occurred. So we need to build better systems to ensure our safety. With Teres Human, back in... 2017, building a safer healthcare network and crossing the cha quality chasm in healthcare, we were making great advances and systems have been in place. But when a system fails, we need to look at the system, not the person who was left holding the medication, holding the syringe. Basically, that's old school, that shaming, blaming, and accusing. It used to be if something bad happened to a patient, whoever was last with the patient, it was always their fault. We now know that humans do make mistakes, and systems need to assist us from being human. We get fatigued. We're busy. Nurses are caring for high patient ratios sometimes and pulled in many different directions. So again, the system failed here. Did prosecutors and others acknowledge from the get-go that what happened was an accident or error? Was Vaught ever accused of deliberately giving her patient the wrong medicine? No, she was never accused of doing this with harm or intent or maliciousness. It was simply human error. She did bypass several safety mechanisms that were supposed to prevent this from happening, but in the system itself, there were built-in ways to override that, that were commonly employed by the nurses who worked there. And that's common to, to, that's not unique to this 
health system. It's pretty common everywhere. You know, in reading about the case, I've been dumbfounded that the prosecutors chose not to go after Vanderbilt, where Vought was working. The hospital did not report the error to state or federal regulators, told the local medical examiner's office that the patient died of, quote, natural causes, and didn't mention vercuronium or a medication error on her death certificate. And yet, they're not even part of this whole thing. Unfortunately, we see often cover-ups with medication errors, with mistakes in hospitals. The transparency, um, unfortunately, is often lacking. We know that For example, as a certified registered nurse anesthetist, if a patient has um, an unintended outcome during an operating procedure, we know that if we are honest and forthcoming and truthful with the family and know that we genuinely were doing the best to care for their family member, most times they will not litigate. Just an example is that it has routinely changed now that if you're family member is brought into the emergency room with CPR in progress. They allow you to stay in the room with your family member while they're trying to save your family member's life. Because they found that when family members see how hard the people work to try to save their family member, how devastated they were when there was a bad outcome, that things do better. Unfortunately, in this case, it appears that things were tried to push under the rug and not illuminated to say, we've made a mistake, help. So you said errors like this one aren't especially rare, that they're more like an unfortunate part of the daily grind of medical work. Are there safeguards? There are safeguards. Um, For example, there are systems in place so that Miss Vaughn should not have been able to pull out Vecuronium versus Versed. But due to the fact that there are certain overrides, because sometimes medications maybe aren't there or what have you, people do workarounds. For example, when you talk about the Challenger explosion back in 1986, I think it was, they knew that there were problems with the O-rings on the space shuttle. But it had gone up and it had come back down numerous times. So we get a deviation of normalcy, right? We are supposed to do X, Y, and Z. But, you know, we haven't been doing Y and Z forever, and nothing bad's ever happened. So do we really need to do X, Y, and Z? Aren't X and Y just enough? Or are we just needing to do X? Or is this really an important practice to do this? So we call that deviation of normalcy. Normal is what you're supposed to always do. Well, if you continue to do something abnormal and nothing bad ever happens, you start to think, well, it's no big deal, right? So there's been a deviation of normalcy at that institution. You refer to that landmark Institute of Medicine report to Air as Human, which estimated that somewhere between 40,000 and 100,000 people hospitalized in America die each year as a result of preventable medical errors. A later report by Martin McCary and colleagues at Johns Hopkins boosted that number to about 250,000 lives claimed each year because of medical error. Either way, that's a lot of preventable deaths. And I know that some result in malpractice judgments, but almost none lead to criminal prosecution. Before this, have any nurses been charged criminally for being part of a medication error that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. Not an unintentional one. 
That's a different story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But not unlike the physician in this, there have been nurses who did the same thing as the physician in this story, and they have been criminally prosecuted. So let's, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's get to that double standard part of your, of your essay. Redonda Vaught was convicted in March of this year. Tell us what happened a month later in the case of Ohio Dr. William Husel. Okay, so he was a physician who apparently with the, who had 14 patients who were critically ill under his care. Some they had a varying range of diagnoses from cancer to pneumonia, and he ordered um, astronomically high doses of the narcotic fentanyl to be used in the care of these patients. Now, what's incredible about this is people did question him, technicians, nurses, uh, other people questioned him, but they ultimately ended up carrying out his orders. So a number of people, I can't remember, it seems like 27 or something, were fired because of this, of his actions. Wow. But he was the one writing the orders and and demanding that this drug be given. So so fentanyl, just to... You know, just to back up for a second, fentanyl is a painkiller, but given in high doses like morphine, it also depresses breathing and can stop breathing. Is that right? Exactly. It's a very potent narcotic. It's 100 times more potent than morphine. And when given in high doses, it can cause respiratory arrest so that the person stops breathing and their heart will slow down and they will die. And so these prescriptions or recommended doses, these weren't errors, were they? No, they were intentional. And what happened to him after he was charged in the deaths? He, he was um, removed from his position at Mount Carmel Hospital outside of Columbus, Ohio, and he was tried and he was acquitted by a jury. On all charges? Yes. Even though we're not talking error here, we're talking willful prescription, unlike Redonda Vaught. Exactly. And we don't know why, because he didn't testify. We don't know why was his aim, you know, to be some sort of angel of mercy to hasten their deaths. We don't know because he didn't testify. But in any event, um, he didn't have the right to do to to hasten their death. No, nobody was asking for it. I mean, it's not like, can you please put me out of my misery? So what have you both been hearing from nurses about the Redonda Vaught case? I think it's, for for one thing, it's the kind of the straw that's breaking the camel's back. Nurses are already stressed, overworked. They have compassion fatigue. They're burned out. And this is just like the straw that's breaking the camel's back to make them leave nursing. Add on that, we have a huge shortage. So do people want to come into a profession where they may be criminally charged and go to prison for making an error? You know, if I mess up your bank account, not such a big deal. Maybe I should be an accountant instead of a nurse. It, it is a, you know, this is coming at a, a very difficult time with, uh, with the pandemic, with the shortage, the looming shortage in nursing. And you, you would hope that things that are happening now would invite people into nursing instead of perhaps nudge them away. Do you think there might be a chilling effect here? I think so. We've heard that's what we're seeing in the news as they interview nurses, that they're just, again, this is sort of that last straw. They're, they're, there was this paper out just not long ago about the number of nurses who are leaving the profession the first three months of graduating after graduating from nursing school is astounding. Wow. And that doesn't mean they're changing jobs. They are leaving nursing after getting a nursing degree after three months. That's amazing. 
So as a certified registered nurse anesthetist for over 30 years, and we've lived in seven different states due to my husband's career, I have to be very honest with you that I've only ever worked at two medical centers that I felt valued nurses had a zero tolerance for unprofessional, disrespectful behavior and had a true culture of safety where you were rewarded for speaking up and you got a good job for catching that near miss. Thanks for sharing. And I've worked at a lot of institutions and I can tell you two in 30 plus years that truly embrace that culture of safety. It seems like this case might shrink that number even further because I'd, I'd be afraid if I was a nurse, I'd be afraid to admit a mistake. Yeah, that's correct. I think that's what's going to happen. And so all the work that's been done over the past 20 years to, to create cultures of safety, now that's just been undone because nurses are, and other care providers are not going to admit mistakes. So Sherry, as a, a nurse who's been on the floor, Michelle, were you, did you also come up working as a nurse? Yes, and I'm a practicing certified nurse midwife currently. So is my wife. Oh, no Small kidding. <laughs> so as, you, as you've been coming up through the ranks, you must have encountered double standards in your careers. How did that work and how did that make you feel? Oh, absolutely. And I just, it reminded me of physicians that I, with whom I've worked who threw temper tantrums on the floor. And uh, years ago, when I was a nursing student, there was a particular surgeon who brought fear into the hearts of every nurse on the floor. He would come on the floor in the morning. That's when we had charts that were paper charts in a round cart-like device. And he would pick up a chart and you'd have to see how his temperament was. And some days he would throw the chart down the hallway and papers would go everywhere. And um, so later on in his career, when he was retired, we happened to be at the same event. And I thought, what have I got to lose? I'm going to just go up to him and have a conversation. And I said, you know, you, you certainly scared a lot of us to death when we were new nurses. And he, he recognized that and said that he felt bad. Yeah, there's a, quite a power dynamic, isn't there? Two examples, one of a positive zero tolerance and one that did not have a positive um, tolerance and a double standard. An orthopedic surgeon one day was irate because he didn't have something that he felt he needed. It wasn't an emergency. No one was dying. He got so angry that he threw an instrument at the wall. It bounced off the wall, hit the circulating nurse in the back of her leg, ruptured her Achilles tendon. Wow. She had to have surgery. Of course, the nurse sued the medical center, but that surgeon still works at that medical center. Hmm. Not a good positive culture for nurses at that medical center. Fast forward to another medical center that had a wonderful zero tolerance. There was a cardiothoracic surgeon, open heart surgeon, who worked at this hospital who could not act professionally in the operating room. Lots of bad behavior, throwing things, carrying on inappropriately, unprofessionally. If you did that in a boardroom, they would pack your bags, and send you packing that day. You no longer work at that organization. This positive value nursing institution let her know that her services were no longer needed and she could find somewhere else to do open heart surgery because they value everyone on the team because everyone on the team is valuable. You still have a bit of a hierarchical pyramid at hospitals, doctors, the rest of us, not everywhere. But that needs to really, really change everywhere. And that must really affect how nurses and other 
healthcare workers, physical therapists, respiratory therapists are able to do their job and, and whether they can do it well or not. Yes, every type of provider, whether you're a medical assistant, you're uh, a, one of the therapists, a nurse, a physician. That's why the Institute of Medicine says the future of healthcare is in teams. And the team is not necessarily led by a physician. It's led by the person best suited to lead that team. So for example, if you have a stroke patient who has all kinds of therapy, needs all kinds of therapists, perhaps the therapists are the people that are the team members that are best suited to lead the team with the physician and the nurses and the pharmacist and every social worker and everybody else. From your perspectives, what are some of the things that are needed to create true cultures of safety in hospitals and other healthcare centers? respect. We need to realize that every person on the team, whether you're people cleaning the floors or you're the CEO of the hospital or you're somewhere in between, everyone is valuable. And without each person doing their job to the best ability and empowered to speak up when they see something wrong. And I would say zero tolerance culture needs to be not just lip service. It needs to be in action. So that people who throw temper tantrums or who scare members of the healthcare team or intimidate them are not allowed to behave that way. As part of the respect, it also sounds like a, a culture of respect would allow for a culture of admission. You know, I made this mistake. What should we do about it? Which sounds like it's an important part of trying to get to safety. Absolutely. If you speak up immediately and say, oh, my goodness, I just did X, Y, and Z. The team can support you and rally and go in, and we can probably prevent it from being a fatal error for that individual. We can hopefully correct whatever was done. If you rally your team and you say, I need help, this is what I just did. I'm concerned that we won't have people willing to say, I need help, this is what I just did. Because it's not that that errors won't happen. I still remember when I was a new nurse and I gave, God forbid, a stool softener to a patient who didn't have it ordered. I mean, now that's not a fatal error, right? But I still remember that to this day. Oh my gosh, what if that had been something, you know, terrible? So, you know, it happens. Errors happen. Well, you wrote in your essay that if, you know, if you haven't made an error, you haven't been practicing long enough. Absolutely. How is something like the Redondabot case, will, will it change how you teach nurses to be? Well, one of the things I will tell you that I do when I teach um, nurses, whether they be our traditional bachelor students or our advanced practice nurses, I incorporate everything that I've learned as a postdoc patient safety fellow into every course that I teach. I not only teach um, anesthesia 101, but I teach safety in there. This is what you have to do. These are the reasons why. So I find that someone like myself I embrace safety and I encourage students to always think about, is this safe? Why am I doing this? What is the reason they have this policy? And to ensure that they're following them because they're there for a reason. So I think when it comes to teaching, we have to A, teach them safety, B, encourage them not to tolerate behavior that is unsafe and to be empowered to speak up even if people aren't listening. And we're looking a lot at interprofessional education and interprofessional collaboration because we're educated in our silos, right? And then we all go out and we practice in the hospital together. So we have to improve our learning so that we're learning with our physical therapist, our pharmacist, our physicians, our nurses, 
our respiratory therapists, that we come together and we look at how do we bring simulation scenarios together where we each play a role so that when we get out in the arena, be it the hospital or the clinic that we're working in, we work together seamlessly and communicate effectively. And I think Sherry and I may be more acutely aware than maybe some other educators. Number one, it's it's pretty rare for a school of nursing director and a dean to actually be clinically working. That's a mm. rare thing to see, but we value that. It's very important. Second of all, obstetrics and anesthesia are always in the top five most heavily litigated areas of medical malpractice. Mm. So we are always probably acutely uh, making our students aware of the the inherent risks of our profession. Are you both at this weird juncture in time optimistic about the future of nursing, pessimistic about it, somewhere in between? Hopeful. I think so. I think the one thing the pandemic has done in a positive light was shine a spotlight on nursing. And so we're seeing people coming back second career folks who say, you know, I did this for my first career, but I've seen what nurses have done in the pandemic and how they've saved lives. And I want to be a part of that too. And so nursing school admissions are up overall because of that. It's amazing how powerful that experience can be to be with somebody in the hospital and see the different ways that care is, quote, administered by nurses and by physicians. The physicians may come in and go out and the nurses are there for a long haul. Exactly. You saw during the pandemic that it was the nurses standing at the bedside. One of the most touching things I saw was as nurses came up with different inventions and they couldn't be in all the rooms holding the hands of everybody who was dying when the pandemic was at its peak. And so a nurse came up with filling uh, just the regular surgical gloves that we use, filling it with warm water, two of them. And then they were positioned above and below a dying patient's hand so that they felt like there was a warm hand holding their hand as they were dying because the nurses just couldn't be in every room. You know, it's always driven me a little crazy when I was doing a lot of writing and reporting about health, how rarely nurses are interviewed as experts on anything other than nursing. Um, so, you know, nurses are at the forefront of a lot of stuff and never get interviewed. You must ha- have seen that. Does that drive you crazy? Yes. Um, you know, nurses <laughs> are with patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? We are there every moment, every breath you take. The physicians come in, they go out. The physical therapists come in, they go out. But 24-7, a nurse is caring for a patient in a hospital. And we are highly educated, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable experts in healthcare. Well, I look forward to seeing the future of nursing. Um, and thank you so much for joining me today and for thinking of STAT for your essay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute... Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. 
Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Thank you.